Hello folks and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host Recluse, aka Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of The Art, The Secret History of Cywar, Conspiratainment, and the Shattering of Reality, Book One. All right, today's guest is making his second appearance. Actually, I think it might be his third appearance on the farm. He is a researcher and author with a degree in history of UC Berkeley. His works include Prophet of Evil, Aleister Crowley, 9-11, and the New World Order, Children of the Beast, Aleister Crowley's Shadow Over Humanity, Abomination, Devil Worship, and Deception in the West Memphis Three Murders, and Global Death Cult, The Order of the Nine Angles, Adam Wafton, and The Slaughter of the Innocents. He is also a documentary filmmaker and has been involved in such works as Occult Hollywood Volume 1 and The Smiley Face Killers, who is abducting and abducting and murdering young men in the U.S. and U.K. Folks, I give you guys the great William Ramsey. William, thank you so much for dropping by today, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Great to be with you again. Absolutely. Well, folks, William has a new book out, one chronicling one of my favorite subjects, The Smiley Face Killers. It's called, fittingly, The Smiley Face Killers, Investigating Suspicious Water Deaths of College-Age Men in the United States and the World. We're going to use that as a starting point for a broader discussion on the smiley face killer phenomenon, including some of the striking regions in the world where victims appear in clusters, the possible connections the band Coil has to them, and why Bruce Springsteen always seems to be Johnny on the spot for these victims, and maybe even a little werewolves. It's going to be quite an outing. So on that note, let us start the show. All right, to start off with, can you take us through what you believe are the connections between the band Coil and the Smiley Face Killers? I find this so fascinating. Yeah, it's really something else. It was uh, amazing to me to kind of see those similarities. And that's why I used a screenshot from one of their videos that they did for Nine Inch Nails. The two members were people who don't know know. Coil was a really interesting, I guess, industrial electronics band, and it was uh, there were two members. One was a guy by the name of Peter Christofferson, and the other was known as John Balance. I don't think that was his real name, but that was his kind of public nom de plume, or you know, a fake name. But uh, Coil for the band was very much esoterically, if not occult, influenced, and they had a bunch of very, um, I think, very edgy at the time. Uh, songs, but they did do so. Peter Christofferson wasn't just a musician, he was actually an artist and was involved in other bands and other groups. So, uh, he actually was featured in this new documentary that's on Netflix. It was called Hypnosis back in the day. Hip, uh, it was very important to have artwork for your album, right? So, it's pre kind of electronic influenced music, so everybody had a you know, vinyl album. So the artwork was very important and hypnosis did some of the best work of all time on those bands for like uh, Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin. And Peter Christofferson was involved in that. So it's interesting to see him on there, but he also was a film like really at the very inception of this kind of new genre of uh, music videos. He was involved in that and he had this very wide ranging uh artists that he did very some underground some even like Hanson brothers which is pretty amusing they must have not have known his darker kind of characteristics but he did get as a long kind of intro into him doing this video 
called Broken for Nine Inch Nails. And it's an interesting video. It's very dark, but it actually, what was shocking to me is how it fit into the kind of standard MO for this, what's called the Smiley Face Killers phenomenon, which is a young man goes out, is at a bar, disappears later, you know, is missing for a longer period of time. There's usually a large search party for that person. And then they're found in water dead, and not necessarily drowned, but they're just found dead in water. And so that kind of caught my eye back when I was doing my first documentary back in 2017. And I followed this broken video and it literally follows the same thing. There's guys driving around in the car. They find a young man. They bring him to kind of a dungeon area. There's all kinds of torture. And then there's a sequence there where they're kind of drowned. Like you can see it on the cover of my first documentary. Um, and that you mentioned, like Smiley Face Killers, who's abducting, murdering young men in the US and UK. You can see it there where there's a pipe going into his mouth. So I thought maybe that was really something very dark, but very similar, kind of involving kind of fetish, BDSM stuff that could be happening to these victims is that they're taken somewhere, drowned, and, and then dropped in water. And it seemed to follow that. So that's kind of, that led me to really look into who was Peter Christofferson. I really didn't know who he was, but he was also in some influential groups known as Throbbing Gristle, uh, which also a Genesis P. Orge, a very well-known occultist, maybe from the occult community they know, who's a member of the Process Church, uh, among other things. And they also started something called the Temple of Psychic Youth, which was kind of a international underground kind of occult group, kind of very at the very early inception of the internet, or even before that. But uh, yeah, Peter Christofferson is a really interesting guy, and Coyle had Crowley influence. And I show some of these clips. They were interviewed, Coyle, uh, by somebody in the UK, and they're just talking about Crowley and all kinds of things that Crowley did, kind of the worship of um, bodily fluids and things like that. So those similarities really led me to like look into Peter Christofferson in great detail. Well, what's interesting about this or the connections that uh, the industrial scene in the States really had uh, to the Midwest, where you've seen such an amazing cluster of smiley victims. Uh, so what I'm referring to with that would be specifically Wax Tracks, uh, which was really uh, the big U.S. label for a lot of industrial outfits during the late 80s, early 90s, uh, Nine Inch Nails, Ministry, a lot of uh, groups like that had artists on Wax Track. But then also, too, um, so Chicago is right at the border with wisconsin uh you know it would be a, a probably only a 20 minute drive if it wasn't for the hellacious chicago traffic so i mean it's more like a half hour 40 minutes but not too far across the border there is a town called uh, lake geneva which is probably about 20 or so miles south of milwaukee and this is a really 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 interesting place so Dungeons and Dragons uh, actually originates from Lake Geneva. The creators oh, wow. of it uh, were based Gary on... Gary Gygax, right? Gary Gygax. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And also uh, Hugh Hefner had uh, a Playboy resort in Lake Geneva, which is highly significant. He ran it from 68 until it closed in 1981. And the reason why that's important is if you have seen uh, the documentary Secrets of the Playboy, mansion then you're aware that hefner was effectively running an epstein style operation 
for decades. Uh, this is especially true of the L.A. Playboy Mansion. The entire mansion was just absolutely wired up everywhere with video cameras, microphones. I mean, just everything in that mansion was recorded by Hefner, including a lot of the uh, the crazy sexual activities that occurred there and throughout the 70s and 80s especially there was just a slew of hollywood actors other people connected to the uh the film and music industries a lot of wealthy individuals in the los angeles area and beyond so god knows how much compromising uh footage was compiled with all of that apparently when hef kicked the bucket back in 2017 his uh, cache of tapes, which probably riled, uh, rivaled J. Edgar Hoover's um, secret and confidential files, were apparently uh, put on a boat and thrown into the ocean, or at least that's what a lot of people were told, but a little uh, dubious of that. But anyway, the yeah, I've heard of that. I heard there's a room underneath the, you know, the Hefner mansion where he kept everything, and uh, the value of that property of that compromise compromised materials in the hundreds of millions because it features very very famous people that's absolutely. that's a yeah absolutely so half has got a resort there in lake geneva we you know again it's been strongly implied that the other uh resorts and things like that that were connected to playboy the same kind of operations were happening there so well that's going on and then on top of that you have the recording studio shade tree studios which i believe was later renamed royal recordings and i'm not sure if it was based out of the building that the playboy resort is was in um it was not it was nearby but anyway a lot of industrial bands recorded albums there in fact i think part of broken might have been recorded there wow. and they also used it a lot of other groups and from what i was wow. told uh wax tracks uh, from locals their wax tracks used to send a lot of locals out to uh lake geneva when they started to have legal issues in chicago this was especially true of ministry because um you know they had a bit of a heroin addict habit so it's kind of a nice secluded little resort town that you could just ship these guys off to across the border and they could you know haul up there until things kind of blew over so it's a lot of really really weird stuff with just this one particular town and you know again if you followed some of the smiley face killer clusters you know that wisconsin was just huge for this yeah. so yeah it's really interesting that they do have that lineage in the industrial scene there yeah and it is and some people have speculated that this is kind of the people committing these crimes are traveling with a band or there's something uh similar to somebody who moves around and commits crimes and then leaves uh so it would make sense that maybe it's a band or somebody recording or going into another state and then leaving. So it's also, that's kind of the area that uh, Jeffrey Dahmer was oh, kind yeah. of happening. You know, all that stuff is happening. He's moving to Chicago, going to bathhouses in Chicago, committing crimes, driving back up to Milwaukee. So also John Wayne Gacy too. So John Wayne Gacy, right. So. And the last four deaths of John Wayne Gacy, his victims, he threw them in water. So it's like, it's a body disposal thing or something much like the and their uh, same thing with the atlanta child killings right so this is something i think in my mind a lot of these water deaths are something associated to something like that some kind of network or people who are serial killer students or something like that 
It's also interesting, too, to note that uh, amongst Hefner and a lot of the inner circle of Playboy, which has been described uh, by some individuals, such as former Playmates and other people connected to the organization as being very cult-like, um, S&M became really popular uh, in the 1970s in these circles. And it was, again, in uh, Secrets of Playboy, some of the women speculated that this was partly because it was seen as a means of breaking uh, the playmates so that they could effectively be bent to uh, Hef's uh, will. So again, bondage, S&M, this has been something that's also been um, mentioned in conjunction with the smiley face victims. And there uh, might be some interesting connections that we can draw from that later on here, but do keep that in mind that um, the whole Playboy crowd definitely had a thing for S&M uh, by the 70s. It's interesting. Yeah. And then one of the things that in my earlier research, I came across a documentary called Kink that is about this kind of new S&M uh, phenomenon where there's like a torture room, but then people pay to stream it. So like people from all over the world will show up at 8 p.m. for what's happening there. And it was a kind of like a very eerie insight into something that like this that may be happening or that may be streamed in the dark web. And this has really happened. In, they've caught people doing really horrible things like this. So the red room is a real uh, truth. I mean, people speculate it's really true. So I'm thinking, I was thinking when I was looking at kink, like, Something like that could be happening with these victims is that they're abducted and then they go through the worst type of uh, event and then are, are disposed of. And a lot, some of these victims, like there's evidence from the autopsies they've been tortured. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of as well. Well, one of the victims that you chronicle that I found especially intriguing is the murder of Kevin Bacon, uh, not the actor. Uh, can you take us through his death and one of the suspects, uh, Mark Latunsky? Yeah, and so that was one that came to my mind as, as I was looking and researching these cases, I was thinking in my mind, what's the type of perpetrator who would do this? So I I just looked for stories and people have sent some some individuals who may fit the profile to me and I encapsulated, encapsulated these people or potential perps in a section called, uh, in my book, in my new book, it's called Perpetrator Typology. And under a perpetrator typology, there's a guy by the name of Latunsky. His last name is called L-A-T-U-N-S-K-I. And it happened in 2019. There was a disappearance of a man whose name is Kevin Bacon, just like you said, just like the actor. And actually the real actor, Kevin Bacon, put up money to find this young man who went missing just because he had heard about it. So he's actually involved in this case. But uh he disappeared the day before Christmas. So kind of a curious kind of, a, you know, Christian, anti-Christian element involved in the Tunsky as well. But he disappeared. He was on Grindr. There's a, there's a commonality of some of the newer victims that they're on these gay dating apps. Um, and he was found four days later in this guy, Mark Latunsky's house outside of uh, Lansing, Michigan. I think it was Lansing or Ann Arbor. Uh, but there was a secret dungeon that these these police found, and it's pretty graphic, but uh, Kevin Bacon was upside down and had his testicles removed, and Mark Latunsky actually ate them. But one of the interesting things about Latunsky and something that you had mentioned in kind of the pre-show or some of the questions you had was his at attraction to this kind of werewolf 
underground online. And it's something that I found when I was researching this case on his Facebook page. He had that he was part of a network of men who were gay, who liked men, but they were also kind of involved in this kind of werewolf. And they had kind of almost like a secret language amongst themselves when they were talking uh, with one another on social media. It kind of reminded me of the uh, Pizzagate Instagram pages where they were like, you know, had secret words and secret secret codes. But Latunsky had like a wolf theme tattoo. He wore kind of strange clothes. He had a wolf pendant. Um, he also said like there was one, he had this fake name, Holy Ghost Kai Olikos, which means like a wolf. But in the underground dictionary, wolfie is a collective term for pedophiles or sex offenders who, who they use because of their heightened predatory behavior. So it even has this wolfy thing has kind of an underground thing. And this is all over his social media. And I included it, a lot of the social media pictures in my second documentary on the Smiley Face Killer Killers. But uh, there were like comments in between each other, like inside full moon tonight, are you feeling wolfy? They would say to one another or stuff like that. And Latunsky had kind of a anti-Christian bias and they were all into leather. Like, so here's this BDSM uh, theme again. They're into Detroit leather pride or Mr. Icon Detroit leather in 2018. So, and they're all involved in this leather garb and things like that. And there's actually a recent show about Latunsky. I think it was called true crime unfiltered or something where they're, they're literally in the police station talking to the guy and he is really strange. And he talks about uh, personal honor in a weird thing. And also this moon cycles, but the police don't pick up on it. It's really incredible. Like, He's talking in this kind of weird kind of um, occult view, but they just don't fall. They don't bore down and ask him any questions about that. But yeah, Latunsky just re I think that they found he was insane. And um, yeah, it's called Interrogation Raw was the television show, A Christmas Nightmare. So you can see him in action, but uh, he was uh, really crazy. But it sounds almost like Order of Nine Angles out ideology when he was talking about that but nobody really you know went into it it's really crazy but he does admit to the cock the police that he ate um that he ate bacon's testicles well it's interesting because the uh, you know one of this sort of emerging strands of ceremonial magic in recent years has been so-called werewolf magic so i thought that was uh, another fascinating connection with that as well uh, especially when we maybe look at some things like the Delphi murders, for instance, and how that might be a factor in it, but it's another subject. Um, it's also interesting, too, uh, again, that the victim's name was Kevin Bacon. Uh, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, one of the uh, television series that uh, the actor Kevin Bacon starred in was the following in which he played a uh, a man who's re-enlisted into the FBI to track down a serial killer played by James Perfourier, who's essentially created a cult of serial killers uh, to carry out his uh, insane scheme. So interesting link or interesting association in light of some of the theories surrounding the smiley face killers. Um, so, by the way, what was the connection that you saw between uh, the victim, Kevin Bacon and smiley? Cause was his body found in water or no? It wasn't found in water, but it was just the fact that he kind of went through the MO of 
uh, online, disappeared, uh, a huge search, and then found kind of in this dungeon. So I've always speculated that there's some kind of element in these cases, not all of them, but that they're taken somewhere and kept. So that was it. So that's kind of, and that's why I, I didn't include Kevin Bacon in my kind of victim section in the book, but in the offender typology, because I was kind of focusing in on Latunsky, who's a very, very, very strange person. In my view, in my opinion, this wasn't his first victim. Well, we've been talking about it, but can you give us a rundown of the recent wave of smiley face victims in Chicago? Yeah, I mean, it's really been incredible because it this event in Chicago, it burned very hot with victims. And it really brought attention to the smiley face killings that didn't really happen before because there were about 10 deaths back to back to back to back in Chicago within the last two years. So I think that the Chicago people, there's actually an FBI agent, a former FBI agent who uh, I included in my book. And she said that she thinks there's a serial killer there, but it just shows that there's a lot of dangerous things going on in Chicago. Like you had people of different age groups. You had one that was really on, like you said, this border in between Wisconsin and Illinois. His name was Seamus Gray. He disappeared March 18th, 2023. I followed this case. Like I've, I've had this kind of grim history of following these guys disappearing and then being found in water. Like I almost can tell if the profile's right, like they're going to find him in water eventually. Because if it's a young man out late at night, starts acting strange, and then it disappears and they can't find him, it's like, okay, I know what's going to happen. That was Seamus Gray. And he was in Waukegan, Illinois, just near the border of Wisconsin. But, uh, he was missing for almost a month. Like they, his body should have been found, but that was one that uh, you know happened in 2023. Another was Joel Orduno. There was a, a couple, which is really strange. There was a man and woman woman who disappeared at the same time. It was Daniel Sotelo and Natalie Brookson. Both disappeared. Both found in water. Both disappeared April 29th, 2022. There was Peter Salvino, that was September 17th, 2022. Christoph Zubert, December 3rd, 2022. Where was he? He was at the Howl at the Moon Bar in River North area of Chicago. So, yeah, there's another werewolf theme, right? Um, And some of these bars are super suspicious. And so one of the interesting things about the Chicago deaths is it's kind of like more multi-ethnic. There was this perception at the beginning of the smiley face killing phenomenon, which probably started with uh, McNeil out of uh, Manhattan in New York in 98, that they were all white people, but that's not happening anymore. There's a lot of people of South Asian or Indian descent and a lot of African-Americans. So one was Jelani Day um, in Chicago. That was August 24th, 2021. His mom doesn't believe it. Um, Oribe Contain 26 and Aki Barskarin. So a lot of uh, different ones. But really what's remarkable is just the public outcry or the public interest in this kind of what I call the SFK rampage in Chicago. Uh, that's happened very recently. It's really something else. Well, one area of the country with smiley victims and or another area of the country with a lot of smiley victims rather in recent years is Boston. So can you take us through the developments there? Boston has always been a hotspot. So it's always been like uh, the young kind of 
men disappearing. And I actually have a full section on it. But if you're in TD Garden, there's like, it's a dangerous place to be. There's been like three cases of people coming out of a Celtics game or a basketball game later to be found in water. There's Michael Kelleher. Uh, the other guy's name was William Hurley. So these are all kind of infamous cases from the uh, Boston area, but there's a huge list of these Boston cases. There's probably, Oh, 20, 25 of these deaths. And it's really kind of been covered up. There was, I feature a, section in my book by it was uh, this person who I had on my show I actually interviewed her but she wrote something for cryptid antiquarian she wrote about the mysterious drownings in Boston and she was a kind of a well-known uh, blogger but once she wrote that article like she had 2,000 comments everybody was like sharing it with their friends because everybody knew that or knows that there's a phenomenon of young men disappearing being found in water in Boston so uh it's a known fact and the actual it's interesting too because the chief of police actually felt led to come out and deny that something was happening which is actually really something else but uh yeah there's been so many cases and i list a lot of them uh, throughout the book and some of them are kind of set aside aside as my main cases such as franco garcia who bruce springsteen got involved with uh, another one is zachary marr and these are all kind of important exemplars of this kind of phenomenon. But yeah, there's just uh, there's just so many cases. It's really something else. Jonathan Daly, you can go through and there's a whole list and a whole section about these cases. Eugene Losick, uh, Hurley, like I mentioned before, Michael Doherty, Shariam, Jaya Kumar. There's just a lot of cases in Boston. And one of the interesting things I even have in my own kind of chapter on it was somebody who came out of TD Garden and was found face down in the water after a game, just like I said, like it's a dangerous place to be. But this young man, they actually, uh, somebody rescued him. He was face down in the water. And there's a picture of some unknown person helping him out of the water that they never interviewed. They never went after him. It was really something else. It's really incredible because it could have broken open the entire SFK cases if they found out who this man was because somebody came up behind him and hit him in the head with either a brick or something very hard and tried to drown him. So it's uh, it was an incredible event in in Boston and amongst all of this other cases that are still ongoing, it's just incredible that this actually happened. Yeah, another thing that's interesting about Boston to me in this uh, regard of the smiley face killers is the connection that Boston has with the uh, phenomenon of uh, phantom or evil clown sightings. And actually, it's, it basically originated in Boston back in the early 1980s. That was the first uh, major cluster of uh, evil clown sightings. Of course, in recent years, Chicago has also been beset by them. But Chicago has had uh, these clown sightings going all the way back to, I think, uh, the early 90s, if not possibly the late 80s. So it's another major city for these kinds of sightings as well. So interesting that uh, both of them also have such a, a prominent place in the kind of smiley mythos if you will why why do you think these evil clowns are sighted are they associated with any type of criminality or they're just people walking around in evil clown outfits 
Mostly it just seems that it's people walking around in evil clown outfits. I mean, I actually saw an evil clown back during one of the clusters in uh, 2016. It was the strangest thing um, because I'm in West Virginia and I was going into Winchester, Virginia to work, which is uh, the first really major city across the border. But anyway, it's it's a very royal drive from where I'm at um, into Winchester. And I was, I think, about halfway between my place and Winchester going by the like the only bank pretty much in this whole stretch. And I just randomly saw this guy walking uh, along this road in a full-blown clown outfit, uh, you know, with like the evil face and everything. It was just kind of the strangest thing to see that like in the middle of the country like that. But yeah, I mean, there are definitely some characters that, uh, you know, just sort of seem to get off on that but again who knows uh it would be curious to see ultimately where this phenomenon really originated from i mean i know a lot of people tried to um uh place it with stephen king's it but uh the boston sightings occurred before it was published in the 80s so again it's it's another kind of peculiar mystery out there yeah no it's odd but it's kind of like this the smiley face is like a symbol of like it's a cosmic joke so like almost the the yeah, evil clown motif is plays in on that right it's kind of like yeah. a joker archetype yeah yeah it kind of plays into the archetypal gesture you know type figure but yeah the i mean that's gesture. why i sort of i kind of see them as like related phenomenon because they are i think a part of this sort of cosmic chaos jester sort of archetype yeah. like the chaos magician is kind of like an evil jester just like the comedian in the watchman right that's the guy who has the smiley face so there's all kinds of weird overlaps between the symbol and modern culture too not just in the bands or the books or coil which had i've seen smiley faces affiliated with uh throbbing gristle but yeah it's it's very strange well can you give us an overview of the smiley face victims in the uk yeah there's a lot that was one of the things that's interesting about this phenomenon is because it's not just something happening in the u.s it's happening world it's a worldwide phenomenon with a lot of cases in the UK, particularly in Manchester, where they kind of give names to different different parts where these things happen. They kind of apply different names. So in Manchester, it's the pusher. In Austin, it's called the Rainy Street Ripper, right? And so some of these people don't see this big picture that this phenomenon is happening all over. It actually happens throughout different parts of the UK. But not in London, strangely. But outside of London, Bristol is another hotspot in the uh, UK. But it all fits the same profile. Young man out at night, um, disappears, only to be found later in water. And Manchester uh, used to have these very ornate canal systems. So they have a lot of walkways and canals. And uh, I was in a documentary by a guy. His name was Gary J who uh it's on on amazon you can see it so it's this kind of phenomenon from the manchester uk perspective and i list a lot of those cases there's a lot of cases um in the uk that overlap too with some of like my offender typology i go into a guy his name was reynard sinaga looks very non-threatening but according to uk authorities he was the most pro pro prolific 
rapist in UK history. They don't know how many people he raped. There were men, but it was in the hundreds. And it kind of fit the kind of profile of the smiley face killers because Reynard Sanaga lived in kind of a gay area and he would wait till the bars empty at 2 a.m. And he would go out at night to find, um, find victims and bring them home and then drug them with GHB. That's another common thing is that uh, people think they're being drugged, like particularly uh, Gilbertson and Gannon in their book, Case Studies and Forensic Drownings. They found tons of elevated GHB levels. But Reynard Sanaga would bring them home, GHB, uh, engaged in non-consensual sex, recorded on his phone. That's how he got busted. And then the people would wake up and nothing, they wouldn't even know what happened to him. And he just did that over and over again. But uh, externally, he was, you know, a member of the LGBT community. He went to a, a LGBT church in Manchester. He's originally from Indonesia. But when they busted him, and he could have been involved in some of these killings. Like, we don't know, like, Maybe some of his victims OD'd or something, and he dropped them in water. But it's just another kind of offender who got caught in his baby maybe being involved in these types of uh, cases. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too because Manchester um, also had a pretty storied uh, music scene uh, for quite a few years, going back to um, like the probably very late 70s, early 80s, you had sort of punk and post-punk bands coming out of there, like The Fall, The Buzzcocks, and The Smiths. Uh, but it was really the late 80s, early 90s, when uh, it was a major scene in the UK. It was nicknamed, uh, the music scene there was nicknamed Manchester. It kind of grew out of the, the rave culture in Manchester and produced a lot of outfits like Happy Mondays, The Stone Roses, uh, New Order. Um, I think the Charlatans were from Manchester as well, but I'm not entirely sure about that. But yeah, it's um, as we've been seeing here, there seems to be a certain overlap uh, with various musical scenes. So it is interesting in that context that Manchester does have a uh, one of the more storied music scenes in the entire uh, UK in recent years. Uh, I believe Bristol might as well, but I'm not as uh, familiar with that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know as much about that, but I, yeah, I've always had this suspicion that this is something to do with people out late at night and bands and stuff. And there's a lot of cases of disappearances after music shows or uh, bars where there's bands or things like that. So it's always I kind of heightened my suspicions that somebody like that may be doing these types of things. Well, what are your thoughts on David Polites' uh, The Missing 411 concept? Well, he's done a lot of different books on those these missing shows. He's done one specifically, my understanding, is just the water deaths. Um, I've tried to talk with him. I was asking him, I remember asking him on social media, do you think that Bigfoot is responsible for these deaths? And he would not respond. So I think that the one book that he did, I critiqued it with Jim Smith, one of the other SFK researchers, but I don't I think that he kind of keeps his analysis vague. So he just kind of goes in, he's kind of so I think he presents his cases in a context where like it's just almost like a campfire ghost story. So I th I think that would be my critique of his work. And and some of his stuff in these kind of national parks don't really overlap on the cases that I've studied. There's really almost I can't even think of 
anything in this kind of pool of victims that were there out at a uh, park or something like that. It's usually at a bar out late at night or coming from a venue. The, all the cases that happen late at night, actually. Well, one of my pet theories concerning the smiley face victims is that a disproportionate amount of them were in the gifted program. From what I could tell, I think close to 15% of the victims Gannon and Gilbertson chronicled uh, seemed to be former gifted kids based on some of the online research that I did. So the gifted are only about 5% of the nation's total population. So already uh, in the small sample that Gannon and Gilbertson give, it's a bit above the bell curve, uh, so to speak. Have you noticed a, a broader pattern possibly related to the gifted program and some of the smiley victims? Yes. I mean, I think that it is a remarkable aspect of the kind of pool. Like in my book, I uh, categorize like 375 cases or victims somewhere like that. I think it's actually higher than that. It probably goes into 400, 450, but of known cases. But what's odd about them is they're young, kind of talented, college, at being educated at college and with a bright future. So that's also kind of some, ele there's some element at least in some of these cases where it's like they there's an intent behind it or to keep this person from successfully changing the world. And it kind of does overlap with the ONA kind of mentality of like you're calling the best and the brightest or, or the Nazarenes. And there is a higher proportion, I would say, of Christianity in the victims too. So there may be uh, some animus there, just like Latunsky had an anti-Christian animus. So I think that uh, it is interesting. I haven't gone through and looked at kind of like general IQ or success at school, but a lot of these guys are very successful. And a lot of the behaviors that they, that happened to them are very out of character. Some aren't heavy drinkers, but they're acting strange. So it sounds like they got drugged, but it, there is an element in my general, you know, my general conclusion is that some of the perpetrators are deliberately targeting people who may have an in, like they're doing it for like calling the best and brightest. Like I, th I do think that's an element to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing that's always jumped out to me with the smiley victims. And one of the reasons why the, uh, you know, the, uh, attributions of it to being alcohol related really don't make sense because so many of the kids, uh, that have been characterized as smiley-faced victims were academically gifted. They seem to be high IQ. They generally had a reputation as being leaders within their schools or the broader community. Certainly many of them sought out leadership roles. Uh, you know, they were straight-A students. A lot of them also did athletics. Just not the kind of people who you would normally think would go out and get so plastered on a night in the town to where they would you know be able to walk or be aware of their surroundings so yeah it's a lot of them had futures too like this is my plan i'm going to be a doctor i'm going to do this so they're forward looking you know they're yes they're delaying gratification like what smart people do right they do delay gratification down a year or two like i'm going to get my degree and then this is going to happen so that's also another commonality one of the interesting things too steve is that what's not there is a member of the elite like the victim pool is almost exclusively middle class or lower middle class but not like i mean this is a classist thing to say i understand but not almost like people who came out of high school and just started working in uh you know 
you know, kitchen extravaganza retail shop or something like that. You know what I mean? Like a lot of it's, there is a correlation between these people going to college or being talented and bright. So maybe that's kind of maybe the element is like, there might be some element of jealousy that these guys are kind of like uh, the most talented and the best and brightest, but also not elite. Like that's also the other thing. Like, it's not like maybe, um, what is it? Silence of the Lambs where the Senator's daughter gets abducted. Right. Like it's almost like the pre-selection process would disclude something like that, that would get too much press or too much attention. Does that make sense? Well, yeah. I mean, it seems like, I mean, cause I've always thought that the, the characteristics of the victims were, um, academically gifted individuals from, uh, the middle to upper middle classes who, were probably being groomed for slots in middle management uh, once they uh, reached their full maturity in terms of uh, careers and that kind of thing, if that makes sense. But, you know, the guys who would essentially run a lot of the uh, the day-to-day -day operations, if you will, the empire, if they went far enough, not, you know, the actual leaders, but the uh, the technicians, the managers, the engineers, that kind of thing. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, it's very, very curious and strange. And there are elements of these cases where these are targeted people. Like, it seems like these people put their profile up on some of these gay apps, but that may have led to their demise because somebody targeted them like, oh, this is my, this is the victim that I'm looking for. And this and one of the interesting cases that I looked in in detail, which I followed while it happened, was a young man by the name of Dakota Oh, what was his name? Dakota Jennings. I can't even remember his last name now. But it was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And he had had kind of a Dakota James, excuse me. He had had kind of a pre-run where he blacked out and came, became aware and saw a black limo and called his friend and said, Come pick me up. I don't know what happened. And then like three or four weeks later, then he disappeared again and then he was found dead a month later. Um, and he wasn't, he was his body was the state of his body was consistent with somebody who just recently died, which is really scary. Out of curiosity, have you uh, seen indications of how the smiley face killer phenomenon has um, evolved, so to speak, with the rise of social media? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this crime has grown in connection with the growth in travel and communication. So it seems to be a connection between that, like they've learned or something's going on in the dark web where they're communicating. But, and I think that also social media has allowed people to compare, compare cases again. So that's kind of where I got my start. When I started looking into the cases, 2016, 2017, there were a number of groups on Facebook that were already extant that you know, we're talking about smiley face killings and other researchers too. So it's allowed us to kind of come together, but it may also be a way for these types of people to communicate, like people who are perpetrators or potential per perpetrators or like Latunsky who had his little werewolf group. So I think that the advent of kind of the internet has facilitated both the, the facilitation of these crimes, but also researching them as well.
Yeah, I wondered if that was a big factor in it becoming more of a nationwide and even global phenomenon, because it does seem like uh, going back to like the 90s, the early knots, it was more contained to certain regions of the country, I like Boston, yeah. New York, uh, the Midwest area around Chicago and Wisconsin. But uh, and, you know, probably since around 2005 onwards, it's spread really, I mean, everywhere. Yeah, no, it's a good point. And they, I think that even in the last year, in the UK, in between the area of downtown London and Bristol, there's been four cases of women where this has happened. Uh, one was named Bully, B-U-L-L-E-Y, where she was out with a walk with her dog, disappeared. People searched for her. And then like two weeks later, she's found in a river. Like she just totally did vanish. So uh, this MO might have just kind of like expanded, like went viral or something in the underground or something like that. One of the weirdest things that jumped out to me when I was going through your book were all of the missing persons alerts that were uh, issued by rocker Bruce Springsteen. Uh, do you ever wonder why the boss always seems to be around these drownings? No, I don't, but it is strange. And he was involved with one that I covered in detail and set aside in my book. I kind of have a, what I think are the more interesting cases set aside. And one, his name was Garcia in Boston, no less. Who was the classic kind of story done with a bar spotted on CCTV cameras walking. He's upright, disappears. Um, they search everywhere around. It's close to a reservoir kind of in Western Boston. And that, the, the reservoir, he's not in the reservoir. Then the call goes out. Springsteen gets note of it. And then so he hits it on social media like, hey, watch out for uh, Garcia. And then couple weeks later, Garcia is found in that same reservoir that was previously searched. And it is odd because Bruce Springsteen, one of his close friends, is Obama, and who just whose personal chef was just kind of uh, very similar smiley face killer's death, where he's out uh, on a paddleboard and disappears and drowns. And uh, that happened on July 23rd, 2023. That was Tafari Campbell. So very strange. It seems like there's an underground that they know this stuff and it gets very dark. And there's actually, I include this, I mean, in my book, but there is a, there were two uh, wrist, wrist, you know, uh, basically bracelets that were exchanged between Obama and Biden. And on those bracelets were literal, literal symbols. And one of the symbols was a smiley face. So it seems like there's some kind of underground knowledge a lot. Some of these elites seem to have. What is your take on Brett, Brett Easton Ellis's decision to jump into the smiley face debate with the film uh, Smiley Face Killers, which he wrote the script for? Yeah, really interesting. It's a good question. It was interesting because it had happened after I finished my first documentary. And so then... I did my second one and then the, his movie came out. So I was curious to see it. I watched it and Brett Easton Ellis has a kind of interesting corpus of work, you know, very nihilistic. I think he's a homosexual and has done like serial killer books and things like that. So I assume maybe like he would try to take his, his take would be that there's some kind of net, like my view is that multiple people are doing it, but he, in my view, if I remember his movie correct, he kind of, just made it like a kind of a weird serial killer was the smiley face killer in his film. But uh, 
yeah, it was it was very curious. And like I said, like like I get that sense that people there's famous people who know a lot more about what's going on than they're telling the public. And Brett Easton Ellis, if you look in his background, it's he's got a very curious but my understanding is into bdsm and that kind of thing too so yeah very strange did you watch his movie yeah yeah i saw it uh, it's been a couple of years now since i watched it but yeah it was um definitely curious i mean in some ways it was sort of a standard um you know horror film and a lot yeah. in fact in a lot of ways it really was kind of a generic slasher so i thought that was kind of a curious approach to take to it yeah just like i'm gonna put out a standard horror movie like and not not look into or make it more sinister than it was. It was just like, oh, there's a guy in the house. He's killing people. Yeah. Very, very strange. Yeah, it's also interesting, too. I know that uh, he went to uh, school with this author, Donna Tart, uh, who wrote a book called uh, The Secret History. Um, it's a pretty popular novel in the 90s, but it was um, actually referenced in a few of Brett Easton Ellison's books as well. It's kind of part of a metafiction thing that they've done. Uh, but if I remember correctly, I believe Tart's book uh, was really popular amongst this uh, group of students at Pearl, Mississippi. And one of this uh, group uh, Luke Woodrum or something like that went on one of the earliest uh, school shooting sprees there in Pearl. This would have been back around like 1997 or something like that. But uh, I've always found that interesting, just this whole group of writers uh, that uh, were around Ellis as well and some of the work that they've done with this sort of metafiction. So uh, when it gets into these kinds of things, I do wonder how much of this is an attempt by Ellis uh, specifically to sort of perpetuate this kind of mythology. Of course, he's also like what given indications that he might have uh, attended high school with a serial killer or something like that in recent years in his podcasts. And um, at one that. point, yeah, he had written this screenplay for the suicides of uh, Teresa Duncan and Jeremy Blake. Uh, just there's a lot of interesting projects that the guy's taken on, to put it mildly. Yeah, no, it's strange. I put him kind of in that kind of darker literature group with Chuck Palniak, who like, the fight club is full of smiley faces. The movie and the book kind of finishes off where the main character, Tyler Durden shoots himself in the mouth and it creates kind of a smiley face. Yeah. You should read that book. It's incredible. In oh, yeah. the context of the smiley face killers, because it's almost like there's a, it's like the way that the project mayhem becomes almost like a secret society. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because, um, uh, the the group of Fight Club in the novel was based off of the Cacophony Society that the author was a part of. Right. And the Cacophony Society was basically a, uh, a Discordian offshoot. And that was something I was curious about because I've definitely seen a fair amount of Discordian symbolism in this as well, especially with the reoccurrence of 23. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's a big thing with Robert Anton Wilson and that branch of Discordianism. But a lot of the, the victims are 23 years old when they die. A lot of the bodies have been found or disposed of on the 23rd of uh, of the month. Or sometimes I've seen certain killings or disappearances happen on February 3rd, which would be 2-3. Uh, so, yeah, have you ever picked up on anything like that? Only just now. Only now. I was not thinking about it on those terms. But now I have to go back and look through uh, everything. I'm looking at the uh, 
the suspicious death of Tafari Campbell, and he disappeared on July twenty third, twenty twenty three. Yeah, like, yeah. So I, yeah, I mean, pe- people have looked through Steve. They've looked through moon phases and all kind of cult dates, but maybe Discordianism is closer to it. I, I don't know. Well, you got to remember, I mean, Discordianism is basically the American version of chaos magic. And as there is that sort of component to it, I mean, I think it would definitely be a an interesting candidate in this context. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. I'll keep an eye out. I'll, I'll look, see, look for those 23s. Well, as we head into the home stretch, I know you've done a lot with references to smiley faces and pop culture. I know you've mentioned a few of them. Um, have you ever considered uh, the Joe Dante classic, The Howling, in this context? I'm going to have to rewatch it. I actually just watched the trailer today and there was a smiley face in it. But I think that you've keyed into something maybe that wasn't as in the front of my conscious brain as much as this werewolf theme. And I think The Howling would be part of it. Like, and it goes back to Latunsky and kind of late night and and also kind of this kind of uh, presencing or metamorphosis of the ONA where you like become something else at night and then come like a vampire or a werewolf or something. And then come, which is part of the ONA is actually there's a were witch type thing in there. But uh, no, I'll have to rewatch The Howling. I mean, when you think of The Howling in the context of the smiley face killers, what does it make you think about? Well, there's a couple of things. Like, first, when you look at the the broader werewolf mythos, there's a school of thought that it originated in um, these kind of ancient traditions that are variously referred to as the Kuros or the Menorbund. And uh, these practices have appeared everywhere uh, from India all the way up through ancient Greece and Rome. And typically, this entailed young men uh, being kicked out of the city-state or wherever that uh, they had resided in. And they went through a period of, you know, anywhere from six months to a year, maybe several years, where they were, in effect, kind of the the walking dead, so to speak. They were ostracized from their societies. And in order to survive, pretty much anything was allowed uh, to them. They could rape they could kill they could plunder to their heart's content as long as they did it to other tribes or other cities not their own people but anybody else was fair game essentially and in terms of when they were used for combat in terms of like a pitch battle or something like that they developed a fearsome reputation for the sort of berserk uh, uninhibited uh, fighting style that they embraced and a lot of these people would wear uh, wolf skins Uh, in fact the dog is also closely associated with um, this whole culture as well there's some theories that one of the initiation rituals would have entailed these young men killing a uh, dog that they had raised since was a puppy. Uh, But regardless, there's kind of thinking that this might have been where the werewolf mythos originated from because the their opponents in battle would see these crazy guys coming out in these wolf skins and they just didn't really seem, you know, totally human to them. And it's been theorized that they, um, you know, the men or bun might have also been tripping balls when they done the wolf skins. So they probably were acting maybe a little radically but anyway the mushrooms mushrooms yeah Yeah. so that's you know that's kind of where the basis of the werewolf mythos comes from and then as it pertains to the howling it's interesting because 
the film opens up with uh, this investigative reporter played by Dee Wallace, who's tracking a serial killer known as Eddie. And it turns out Eddie's calling card for his victims is leaving a smiley face. Wow. Okay. And is she further? Uh, well, okay. So Eddie assaults her and nearly kills her. And she has a breakdown. And in the aftermath of this, uh, one of her friends, I think it might even be her therapist, comes forward and suggests that she goes to this retreat that he has in Northern California, which she does. And as she um, spends more time there, she determines that effectively this retreat is a cult of werewolves uh, that Eddie was a part of. And he's still alive for that matter as well. But it's sort of this roaming cult of werewolves that have uh, kind of centered around this um, this almost like Warner von uh, Warner Earhart's. I can't remember the Est founder's name off the top of my head. Warner Earhart, you had it right. Yeah, yeah, Warner Earhart. He's almost like this Warner Earhart-esque self-help guru. Of course, there's definitely, I would say, a bit of criticism of Est and Esalen and a lot of that and the howling as well. But it's really interesting how much the the plot line for the howling seems to parallel some of the theories around the smiley face victims being sort of a cult of serial killers uh so i have actually right. wondered if that might have been one of the inspirations and again i know people might think that it's a little out there that something like this could have been based on you know a concept like the mentor bund but you have to keep in mind that uh these notions were actually introduced into uh not dungeons and dragons but a lot of similar um RPGs, role-playing games back in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, a lot of the knockoffs from D&D. So people growing up in that era, even though that they were not aware of it, were sort of being um, uh, given a grasp of these concepts through games like that, which again is also why I think it's interesting that D&D originated there in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Yeah. Uh, but there's, you know, there's a lot to all of this that I think... Uh, probably has some compelling connections to the smiley face mythos to put it mildly yeah it ties right back into Latunsky and his friends it makes me want to go back through all the screenshots that i took because he could have been part of a group that does this type of stuff i mean it's not a, i'm not joking like so they they actualize something they saw in fiction which you know isn't impossible because that's what leonard lake and uh richard ing did right didn't they have a book they like saw the book. Oh like, yeah, the I'm collector. Gonna... Yeah, yeah, the collector. Yeah. A lot of serial killers had a copy of that book. Yeah, weird. So like, yeah, I'm going to do this. And in some ways, there are similarities between the smiley face killings and those guys who were involved in snuff, but like abducting, holding in a cell, torture. I mean, horror. I mean, that's just that's that whole story of Leonard Lakening is like almost unbelievable. But they were monsters, man. They were real monsters. All right, I got another one for you. How about uh, okay. Chinatown? Yes, Chinatown. Very good. Excellent reference. Chinatown is about water, right? So it's about water rights and drowning. But actually in Chinatown, they find out that the guy who drowned, I think at the very beginning of the film, had salt water in his lungs, not regular water, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it was kind of the same thing where he was actually drowned in one location, and then he was moved to another location. Yes, yeah. And they figured that out because they drowned him. I forgot what the story it was. was in that was lake in his his his, uh, his residence, they had that little like salt pond or something. Yes, like that. yes. It was the little pond that they found his medallion or something in. So it's a total smiley face killer type of. Uh, 
and some apparently there's like a Johnny Depp movie where like they the beginning of the film they fish a body out and Depp says something really strange like he may not have drowned there like something like and I think he was kind of like a 19th in the movie is a 19th century detective I have to go back and figure out which Depp movie that is but yeah no Chinatown's really good yeah there's there's very strange well, it's also interesting with the people behind it too, because of course it was uh, it was directed by Roman Polanski, and it starred uh, Jack Nicholson and John Huston. Um, apparently, both Nicholson and potentially Huston were also spending a lot of time uh, at the Playboy Mansion during the filming of this. And of course, Polanski was a good friend of Hefner. In fact, uh, Hefner is actually who had uh, partially funded. Polanski's 1971 adaptation of um, uh, Macbeth. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of weird stuff about this because it was in 1974, the playmate Paige Young uh, committed suicide and uh, her bedroom was, it's been described as something out of a B-horror movie where they found the body. She had like her uh, American flag on her bed, which is where she had committed suicide. Supposedly, she was grinning too, even though she had put the pistol in her mouth and that was how she had uh, left this world. Um, she had a pentagram carved into the floor and then the bathroom um, had a bunch of images of Hugh Hefner all in it saying that Hugh Hefner is the devil. Uh, but apparently she had or a lot of her friends at least had speculated that the suicide was supposed to raise awareness about the activities of hefner and uh john houston uh who she had gone to ireland with uh, because he hadn't stayed out there but houston is another guy who is um very interesting figure of course he plays noah cross in chinatown uh he was a childhood friend and longtime friend of a L.A. doctor known as George Hedell. And uh, there has been quite a bit of compelling evidence that's come out over the last two decades, a lot of it from Hedell's son, Steve, uh, that his father, George, uh, was one of the individuals involved in the Black Dahlia murder as well. Of course, that um, features a rather infamous use of the good old Glasgow smile. So... Again, it's right. kind of interesting that you see all that. weird because I think that Nicholson was dating his daughter too for a long time. Angelica. Yeah, Nicholson looked to Houston as a surrogate father because yeah, he was dating Angelica for years. In fact, a lot of people think that he mainly kept the relationship with Angelica going until John died because he wanted um, Houston to think that she was going to be taken care of by Nicholson. And of course, we can't forget Nicholson was famously played the Joker later on too. <laughs> right. Right. No, there's all kinds of weird overlaps and. And Houston in Chinatown is almost like, a, you know, a Luciferian character. Like, well, yeah, he's he raped his all daughter. Of, and... Yeah, he raped his daughter. Yeah. And all, he was part of the whole land scams, too, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's it's Chinatown. It's Chinatown. Maybe that smiley face killers is part of Chinatown. Like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I've definitely wondered about that because, I mean, you do have sort of the similar modus apparatus with the victim and uh, or at least how the victim is killed. And then again, you have so many of these strange characters in the background there. I mean, obviously, Polanski had raped a uh, 13 year old girl in 77 at Nicholson's residence. Just uh, it's a very um, dark yeah, uh, no. alleyway. <laughs> Super dark. You know, he just went to France and then they, he like there's even allegations of him doing that in France. There's a bunch of women. 
Oh so yeah, it, it didn't stop. Yeah. Yeah, no, he definitely had done it before and after um, the arrest in 77. There's no doubt in my mind. I mean, of course, there's the CLO drive. I mean, Polanski runs deep. Yeah, very dark, dark, dark person. Well, William, as always, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Uh, Do you want to tell the kids about the book here one last time before we sign off? Yeah, just published it September 2023. You can find it at my website, William Ramsey Investigates. You can buy it on Amazon, and uh, it has very good reviews. There's a lot of information in there. Much of the stuff is new. The reason why I wrote it is because so much happened in the last two years. So those kind of later chapters are um, very uh, unique. I don't think anybody's written on that. And then it's also kind of functions like as a history of the research into the Smiley Face Killer. So I include other researchers as well in the book. So it's not just me talking about the thing the whole time. All right, folks, there you have it. And on that note, we will sign off for now. As always, I want to thank you guys so much for listening and your support. And with that, good night and good luck to you all.